Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. What's it like when one of your friends on death row is led away to be executed? You have a prepaid call from... William A. Aguera. An inmate at the California State Prison, San Quentin. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and reported. I had to be a different complete guy, which is the guy who walked the walkways of San Quentin's death row and without a gang, without a group of people around me, it was just me. Soon after you went into to be on death row, and you didn't really understand the prison workout system so much. But then he said, we're going to do 75 sets of these. To me, that seems extreme. So I'm wondering if there's a danger of overtraining, wearing yourself out so that you're... <laughs> no, no, that's actually funny. And it's funny, and I'll tell you why. And I, and I, and I, that's a good one, man. Uh, I'll tell you why. Look. All right, welcome to another episode of Death Row Diaries. I am Matt Ralston. All right, welcome to Death Row Diaries. I'm Matt Ralston. And I'm William Maguero. And today we're going to be finishing up here on part two of our discussion on Kevin Cooper. And when we left off, we were discussing the evidence that would lead to his conviction. And I think it's fair to say we had a few concerns, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, This case... The more I've read about it, the more I've looked at some of the things that he has personally given me to look at. It just, it's mind-boggling because we're supposed to be able to trust those in charge of truth and justice. And it seems that this case is a classic example of things gone bad. So, yeah, I thought it'd be good for us to just take a look at the evidence of what they had to start with. And I I just want to say that it looks bad at first. So keep an open mind and you'll start to see where both Matt and I have looked at this and just keep shaking our head. So number one, of course, uh, they have that he escaped from CIM prison and ended up at the vacant lease house, which was about 125 yards from the house where the murders took place. In terms of the evidence that they had and found, they had a green khaki button identical to those that are issued to CIM inmates. And it was found in the bedroom where Kevin Cooper slept in the vacant house. Uh, and it had blood on it. And number two, they found um, that, fu- that blood was present on the walls and floors of the vacant home where he stayed, including in the shower. Number three, they found a hatchet 
uh, very close to the house, and it had blood from the victims on it. And they also found the sleeve of that hatchet in the house where Kevin Cooper stayed. Number four, they found uh, a bloody footprint in the home of the victims, and the pattern, according to police, matched perfectly to prison-issue shoes that are exclusively given to prisoners in California. And the, the, the word we should remember here is exclusively. Number five, the white station wagon was stolen from the Rhine home. It was found in Long Beach. According to police, tobacco was found that matched prison-issued tobacco in the car, including cigarette butts that matched Kevin Cooper's uh, blood type or DNA on, on the cigarettes. And um, lastly, I mean, and I, I don't want to sound facetious or mean, but hey, he was a black guy. And that matched what everybody believed the person looked like that would probably do something like this. So from there, um, you know, he's tried and, and, and basically just convicted on this this evidence. It looks very bad for him. I mean, the evidence looks pretty conclusive. Hey, anybody looks at this thing and says, man, that's it. We got him. But looks are deceiving. Yeah, we, there's some problems with this right away when you look into it a little bit closer. I don't even know where to start, but... Look, everybody knows that he got convicted. Everybody knows that the public in um, San Bernardino and everywhere he went, you know, hung gorilla uh, stuffed animals with nooses around their neck. They called him the N-word. It, it was really bad. I mean, if that would have happened in today's uh, courtrooms, things would have been different. I, I'm hoping. But it was bad. So... I think we should jump that he got convicted, sentenced to death, and he ends up on death row at St. Quentin State Prison, where I met him in 1988 uh, when I was released from the adjustment center, the AC. And I'll just describe him to the audience and say that he stayed to himself. He's not involved in gangs, never has been. And there was rumors circling him from the very beginning that I met him. And the rumor was, hey, that guy's an innocent guy. Even the people in prison knew something was wrong because, of course, as we're going to learn, Ray Allen was here as well. And we're going to get into how Ray Allen is connected to this case, and we hinted about it earlier. But you know, nothing really hides in prison. So that he was convicted of killing a family, including children, nobody made any kind of moves against him. Nobody questioned him because of the rumors that this guy was that this guy was actually set up. So was there just kind of a general, you know, a buzz about it? I mean, did people know specifics or, or had the word just kind of got out that it was kind of fishy? Yeah, just the word got out. No one knew specifics. These are just rumors, but usually these, where there's, you know, smoke, there's usually fire and prisoners usually have pretty good nose about these things. And that was the rumor about this guy. And, you know, the, the years went by. You know, I saw him age with time. And the appeals continued and they continued to be denied. Uh, he had, you know, state attorneys. He didn't have the type of team that you would think a person fighting for his life would have. He always lived in cell 82, which is, he still lives in that cell right now. I live in 77. He lives in 82 on the fourth tier. 
And, you know, I was in his cell the night they came for him. They came to his cell to execute him. And they cuffed him, they put chains on him, and he walked right by my cell when they were taking him to be executed. I, I really felt that they were going to, to execute him. And, um, and I want to say that, you know, the, the courts did step in. They even smelled something fishy. They stepped in, they stopped it. But when he came back, a piece of him died. He's never been the same. He's still fighting for his life. He still maintains his innocence. But that ordeal of being put next to the chamber, and they're going through the entire process, which, by the way, he did not participate in, it killed a piece of him. So when you say he didn't participate, like they had to like restrain him and all this stuff. No, it's just that, you know, when you're, when you're going to be executed, they want to fit you with clothes. They want to ask you questions. He refused to participate in the process. And I mean, would you, I mean, if you were an innocent man, would you participate in someone, the state of California, uh, executing you? So he just refused to participate. He, he would not take a last meal. He would not talk. He would just, he was just completely against it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and they, but at the last minute, the court stepped in and they saved him. But you have to recall that he was, at that point, it was 2004, February, when he was scheduled to be executed. And California was, you know, presently in the process of executing people. He would have been the 11th guy executed instead of uh, Donald Beersley, who ended up getting executed, it would have been Kevin Cooper. So he wasn't out of the woods. Just because the court stated did not mean that he, he, was, he was safe because the courts were still adjudicating his case. Um, you know, and he had to prepare himself mentally to be executed. That's, that's huge. And, you know... But here's where still things begin to really change. He got a major law firm to step in. And they began to really look at this case. And when I said things are not what they seem, and it, it's, this law firm brought up huge issues. And I think that we should discuss these issues because... Look, I'm all about trusting those who are there to collect evidence. They're supposed to be about truth and justice. And when they're not, there's huge problems in the system. Yeah. Basically, what we're going to find is with all those key pieces of evidence, uh, the button, the cigarette butts, the footprint, all this stuff, those are kind of the, the front story. And then there's, there's actually like a backstory to almost every one of these items, his T-shirt. It, it just turns out that there's more contradictory evidence for almost all these these very convenient pieces of evidence, I should point out. Um, you know, there's contradictory evidence that it seems highly likely that a lot of it was planted, right? Yeah, absolutely. The, the defense team that Kevin Cooper has now brought in a the former chief of the FBI in Los Angeles. So this is not some burnout, some Yahoo, some guy that's going to be fooled by a guy in prison. And his words are, first of all, the sheriff 
in San Bernardino got tunnel vision. He found out that Kevin Cooper escaped from that prison and that he hid in that house very close to where the murders happened. And right away, he announced to the public, Kevin Cooper is the culprit. He was in the house. He's the one that did it. So, of course, usually law enforcement allows the evidence to speak for them. They gather the evidence and then they interpret it. In this case, they had the perp they wanted. So they they switched and baited and changed the evidence to fit the person they want to stick it on. And this comes from, this is, these are not my words. These are the words of the former head of the FBI in Los Angeles. Okay? So let's review some of this evidence that the former FBI guy has taken a look at and now has come to light. So first of all, this khaki green button found that was supposed to have blood on it. Well, it turns out that witnesses say that Kevin had a tan one, not a green one, okay? And that a deputy sheriff was asked to acquire a green one prior to turning up the button. Very suspicious, not conclusive. Number two, that blood that was supposed to be on the walls of the shower where Kevin Cooper stayed, on the, on the floors, and on the shower of the vacant house, that people detected there was blood. See, they, they spray it with this special uh, spray, and then they put a black light on it, and immediately it shows up if there was, you know, blood. Well, it turns out that that house was cleaned because it was going to be uh, rented out again. And when you use bleach on the walls, on the floor, in the shower, it takes on the same appearance of blood. The fact that they did not find any blood at all and couldn't attach the blood to anybody, that kind of suggests that it was exactly bleach. Okay, conclusive, no. But it begins to point to the direction of how they were reading the evidence. Number three, this hatchet. They find a hatchet close to the home, and it has the victim's blood. Obviously, it is the murder weapon. It has no fingerprints. There's nothing in that hatchet that attaches to Kevin Cooper. So what happens? They search the vacant house. They find nothing the first time. The second time they search the house, conveniently they find this, the sleeve that protects the blade of the hatchet in plain view. So now they can connect it to Kevin Cooper. He was in the house. There's obviously the sleeve is there. So obviously the hatchet must have been there. He took it. But again, highly suspicious right yeah i mean they have you know probably what happened is uh you know the chief the da thought that he was guilty and they thought in this circumstance if they falsified some evidence they were maybe doing the right thing to put a, a guilty guy behind bars who otherwise might might go free and you can't do that obviously but uh, especially if if he's actually innocent I mean, now you're doing something beyond heinous. Absolutely. Yeah, so there's a lot of problems with this evidence. And, I mean, what, what are a couple, like, what do you think is, is one that, you, that really uh, sounds an alarm for you? Well, <laughs> they all do. But, so, the last one is kind of, well, you could say that it's overzealous police work, that, you know, they really wanted to get this guy... So, and this one is, is good, okay? So, they find a bloody footprint 
on the sheet in the murder scene. And the police say that that footprint is exclusive sole that goes to shoes issued to California prisoners attire. It turns out <laughs> that that's not true at all. The shoes that were available, those shoes were available at most retail stores, including Sears. So here we go again. But even that can't be looked upon like, okay, they, they framed the guy. That's nah, just coincidental stuff, it's small things. But here's where things get really bad. And it's obvious that they're framing someone, they're manufacturing evidence, and it seems that they're doing it without any conscience. So here you go. A deputy's fingerprints are found discovered in the closet where Kevin slept in the vacant home. The print was determined to have been left there a day before the evidence in the closet was officially found. That deputy then testified that he had never been in that closet. Prints don't appear magically. He lied. Why was he lying? And I'll tell you why. They find the station wagon and they search it. There are no cigarette butts in, in the in the car. However, when they search the second time, they find two cigarette butts that supposedly match Kevin Cooper's saliva. It should be noted, though, that those cigarette butts were discovered in the lease home, which was the vacant home. At first, they noted in evidence that three butts of cigarettes were found in the home. Later, two disappear, and only one is written into evidence from the home. And yet, two of them appear in the car later. Interesting? What yeah. Well, if anyone is familiar, or you could just sort of intuit the process of what happens when a car is taken into evidence... They catalog every single thing in the car. You know, they, they catalog uh, an ink pen or a, a, a loose M&M, you know, five pennies and six nickels. Every single item they catalog as well as, you know, stripping the car, you know, taking samples of the carpet and the seats and everything. And it is impossible to gloss over you know, these two, you know, these, these two items that are conspicuous, the, the cigarette butts that, that cannot happen in a proper or even like a half-assed, um, inspection of the car. Yeah, absolutely. And, 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 and worse, they find in the car blood from the, the victims, but here's the interesting part. They find blood in the front seat, they find blood in the passenger seat, and they find blood in the, in the back seat, which suggests to anybody who's even remotely competent that there are three people in that car. Kevin Cooper didn't sit in the, in the passenger side seat, then jump to the driver's seat, then jump to the back seat just to leave blood there. There was three people in that car. And if you recall, recall earlier, uh, Josh Ryan the only witness, surviving witness, said from the very beginning until they started twisting his story that there was three people in the house. So, so okay, so those things are they're bad, but they get worse. So, 
So there's a blood, there's a splatter of blood discovered, a drop really discovered the murder scene. They call it A41. The criminalist that first takes the blood and tests it states it does not match Kevin Cooper. Then later when they take, they arrest Kevin Cooper, they take two vials of his blood, the criminalist changes his position and says it matches perfectly to Kevin Cooper. So why does he do this? Is he incompetent? Did he make a mistake the first time? We have to see how the evidence kind of unfolds to see what really happened. So next, the lab tech also then, um, he grabs the entire blood identified as A41, and he states that he used it all. His words were, it was completely consumed. However, later, the sample magically reappears. It's tested, and then this time it comes back as Cooper. <laughs> However, the sample tube is tested, and it comes back as having two different types of blood. Confusing? Check this out, Matt. What happened was the lab tech put blood into the container to make up for the blood that was missing because he used it. It's the only explanation that makes any sense. Why would there be two types of blood in the tube marked Kevin Cooper? It's like when you, you know, you go to your parents' house and you, and you drink your parents' vodka and you don't want your parents to find out. What do you normally do? You pour some water in it, right? Fill it right back up to where it was. Exactly. So this explains why there's two types of blood. And this is unfair. This is stuff that should not be done. I mean, what do you do with this kind? What do you do when, when the other team is fighting unfair? Yeah, I mean, you know, that that would have any proper trial. It would be thrown out based on that alone. Um, and, you know, you see this in so many of these cases. These guys have access to the crime scene, that you know, the detectives and any number of other people involved with law enforcement. And the car, too, is, is something that comes up again and again with, like, uh, Stephen Avery is just one example that people might know about. You know, they, they take this car to a garage and there's no one around and they can do anything they want with it. And I, I think the same with the house. Unfortunately, there was just a little boy had survived. You know, this is an empty, it's an empty house. Yeah, and it seems to go on. Like everybody wanted to please the people in charge. Another example is this guy named... Daniel Gregonis. He's an expert for the prosecution. He goes into the evidence locker. He pulls Kevin's blood out, and the blood is missing for 24 hours. Without informing the defense, which is his duty to do so, he's supposed to have discovery. Hey, this guy took the sample out. He tested it. Nothing like that was done. So all these things are bad. They point to a frame job. But here's the kicker. Police also had evidence that pointed to other suspects, and they ignored them. They had eyewitnesses. The first was Josh Ryan. He says, when they showed him a picture of Kevin Cooper, his first words were, that's not him. Period. It's not him. Another witness said 
that they saw three white guys in a white station wagon driving from the murder scene. Again, those aren't conclusive to giving you a person that they can put it on or say this is the suspect. However, Diana Roper, and remember her name, Diana Roper has a boyfriend who comes to her home on June the 4th, 1983, the night of the murders. He's driving a white station wagon with two other guys in the car. She notifies law enforcement and gives them the bloody overalls that he's wearing. She also identifies the tan t-shirt found and gives descriptive identification of the of the t-shirt, including the brand and everything. How does she know this? Simple. She gave it to her boyfriend. Do you want to know who the boyfriend was? This is a man that we recognize from the Clarence Ray Allen episode. Elementary, my dear Watson. It's Lee Farrell. The same Lee Farrell, or Farrell, who murdered Miss Kitts, a 17-year-old girl, on the behest or orders of Ray Allen. Okay, let's go beyond that. Telephone records and the logs show a deputy sheriff made several attempts to give those overalls. This is a key piece of evidence from a witness as well as the person saying, this guy did it to a lead investigator, but he was ignored until suddenly the overalls were mysteriously destroyed. And no one has them, no one can get them because of course they're gone, they're disappeared. Three other witnesses have also come forward indicating that Lee Farrell told them that he killed the family. I mean, okay, here's what here's where coincidence turns into just blatant ignorance or maliciousness from people in charge. The station wagon, the Ryan station wagon, was actually found in Long Beach five minutes from the Lee Farrell's stepmother's home is that bad yeah and there's also i mean another of these many smoking guns uh miss roper told police that she looked in his kind of tool shed area and his machete was missing um you know and this is a violent hatchet it's hatchet i'm sorry his hatchet was missing. I was wondering why he'd have a machete. Although, you know, he's a, this guy's a killer. I mean, this guy kills people with his bare hands, uh, not to mention in a group of other thugs. I mean, that's, that's how the other murder went down, um, was in a group. So with it being, you know, three people, that's exactly how Lee Furrow and his, his gang operate. Yeah, and his and look, this is no uh, you know news flash to anybody. Lee Farrell is a convicted murderer. He murdered a seventeen-year-old girl named Mary Sue Kitts on the orders of Clarence Ray Allen, who was the last person executed in California. And Ray Allen had previously documented a disagreement. See, it's not just that this guy was a killer and that he took orders from this one guy. This is the key piece of evidence 
that we can connect Clarence Allen to his family. They had a documented disagreement about an Arabian horse that that Ray Allen bought from the Ryans. The sale went sideways on them, and there was a huge disagreement, so much so that the Ryans repossessed the horse, pissing off Allen. And what does Allen do when you piss him off? Look, he was in prison for the murder of Mary Sue Kitts, and from prison, he ordered another prisoner, Billy Ray Hamilton, to, when he got out of prison, to murder the witnesses that testified against him in the first trial. So when he got a new trial, there would be no one to testify against him. This is what this guy does. He's part of a, of, of a ring of thugs. He was an organized crime figure. I mean, what else can be said? This is like the perfect, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink, but this is ridiculous. Yeah, so we need to, I guess, point out here that Clarence Ray Allen has a motive. He feels he's been wronged in this business deal. He has a history of retaliating violently in those situations. Kevin Cooper doesn't have a motive, I guess, other than to to get money so he can flee, but he doesn't take the money that's right in front of him in the house. Exactly. Yeah, that's the that's the big key eye opener. He's in that vacant house calling up friends asking for money. Please help me. I need money to escape. According to police, he goes to the house to steal a car, but he leaves the money on the counter. It, it makes no sense. The motive that the car was... The, look, the truth of the matter is they made it fit whatever they needed it to fit. The person with the motive, the person who has the means because he's done, he did it from Folsom prison. He called the hits and had nearly three per piece, uh, people murdered. And those are just a couple of them on the list. He, there was more on that list that Ray Allen had, um, Billy Ray carry around with him to go kill these people. And this is what he does while in prison. And here's, this is something no one probably knows because Kevin Cooper didn't know. Ray Allen was in the same yard with him and me at the same time. And Kevin Cooper never knew because he didn't have the evidence because the police knew about this and kept it quiet. They never divulged to the defense that this guy, Ree Farrell and Clarence Allen had a connection to this family. They didn't find this out until after Ray Allen was executed. Did, did Ray Allen, I know that he wrote poems kind of bragging about how he would he would have people who he disagreed with or had evidence of some of his other crimes like a robbery he would have them killed um i'm wondering if he ever kind of mentioned in passing you know a lot of times criminals do that they just can't keep their mouth shut i i wonder but he was already suspected of this, like kind of by the public at large, because the, the connection is just so obvious, you know? Well, it was after no one really knew about this connection, but the law enforcement, they kept it in the wraps. No one knew about this stuff. And, and Kevin Cooper had no idea. Even with, he was in the same yard ER with this guy. Hell, if it was me and this guy was possibly something that I knew about it, believe me, he and I would sit down and have a conversation about this. Believe me, that would happen. But Kevin had no idea. No one had any idea 
until this large law firm that he has now that's actually very confident they're doing their job not to help this guy found out about this. I see. I see. So, and Alan, I guess, just did, he did a good job of keeping his mouth shut, it sounds like. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I, I never heard anything about it, but why would he talk about it with anybody? You know, his crime partner, Billy Ray Hamilton, was here. He's very active, um, you know, hurting people and doing what he does. Um, so they, they didn't spend much time together here, so Ray Allen was on his own. But he never talked about anything, and no one suspected him of it. So this is, this is look, and nothing else, this is extremely disturbing. But if you look at the, this whole case the way it is, the evidence, coupled with the tampering and destroying and planting of evidence, it leaves little doubt in any competent person's mind that Kevin Cooper was framed. If at the very least he didn't get a fair trial that was impartial. It just didn't happen. Yeah, the girl, the little girl that was brutally murdered, Jessica Ryan, uh, at the crime scene, they found clutched in her hand um, some light-colored hair, you know, blonde or light brown hair, which obviously uh, was was ripped from her uh, murderer's head. And uh, I'm not into, you know, hair samples. I think a lot of that is totally bunk. But obviously, we know that uh, Kevin Cooper has black, kind of wiry hair, and uh, that's not that's not a scientific statement to determine that whoever attacked her was not a, a black man. That's um, that is common sense. Yeah, uh, Kevin Cooper had at that time a, a large black afro. He's African American. If the audience doesn't know that. It's, and he's extremely dark. So to mistake him for a person that's Caucasian is, is, or Mexican is ridiculous. He has no features that would suggest that he's Caucasian or that he's Mexican. And um, this is a very disturbing case. And look, you and I have discussed this in the past, Matt, and the Death Row Diaries is about you know breaking down these cases, talking about people that were here, what they did while they were here, and for the most part, we're batting pretty much ninety-five percent or ninety-eight percent. The guys are guilty, and and we're basically stating that. In this case, like the Tommy Thompson case, although we said that what he's not guilty of is, you know, probably the rape, uh, which would have uh, you know taken a death penalty off the table. But this is the first case that you and I have really discussed that's disturbing. And it's, it, it points to at least the possibility that this man is actually innocent and that he was wronged. You know, they found Kevin Cooper's hair in the shower. You know, you start looking at this and it, it's like they had a little kit with all of his <laughs> biological samples in it. And they essentially just went around sprinkling them uh, on things. Yeah, it's it's really difficult to read about. I read now. This is not anyone respected. It was just a, a comment section that I was reading after one of the articles. And I hate people that think like this. So the guy writes, "I respectfully disagree with the investigation, which led to his arrest and conviction. That was deeply flawed and undoubtedly biased. And the police certainly tampered with the evidence. Blah blah blah." The fact that uh, Kevin Cooper committed these crimes should not be overlooked as a consequence of police misconduct. So I think there's a lot of people 
still that will justify framing a guy with false planted evidence because uh, it's it's the way it's what they needed to do. You know, I guess that would be the kind of mm, status quo opinion of some of these people is is they had to do this, you know, because it was a, a horrible crime. And uh, it's such a dumbass way of thinking because it could be you. Yeah, well, that, that's exactly what I was going to say. It's okay until it's, it isn't. And usually it's when it happens to somebody you know, or God forbid, it happens to you personally. And look, we've had a number of cases where people have been put in prison that were completely innocent. Look, I'm going to be the first one to tell you, hey, the majority of people in prison are freaking guilty. But that should not stop people from playing fair. Um, you are the branch of the law that does this, collects evidence. You should be fair about it. If you can't catch the guy fairly, hey, man, don't cheat. Because then you become just like the guy's committing the crimes you're a criminal and you know you can't be moaned this because it's a fact jack i mean you you can't cheat to convict a guy because you don't have the evidence that you would like to have it's just it, it just it goes up against everything that anybody really believes in in fairness that statue has in the justice a, a blindfold not because it's turning a blind eye because it's turning a blind eye to criminal activities by law enforcement, it's blind because it's it's, it's about not being prejudiced, okay, uh, prejudicial against anybody. It's, it's blind because the, the law applies to everyone fairly and equally. There is no, well, the guy happens to be a white guy, so I'm, I'm going to look the other way, or the, the guy's Mexican, I'm going to convict him. It's not like that's supposed to be applied fairly. In this case, it was not, and they got caught with their hand in the cookie jar. Unfortunately, and this is where it really gets bad, Matt, because let's say they're able to prove that, you know, he didn't get a fair trial. He gets another trial and they, they find him not guilty. Um, 40 years are gone from this man's life. Uh, the family's still dead and the actual perpetrator got away with it. So the man that suffers the most is the man who's cheated from, you know, not to say the family, they were cheated out of their life, and that was horrible. It should never have happened, but it did. But to blame a guy just because you could, just not not a good thing. Do you know what I mean? Just, just horrible. Yeah, and that's, I think that's kind of our opinion. And But it's not just us. I mean, if you look at the Ninth Circuit Court, which is the second highest court in the country, and you have people like, I think we mentioned this uh, in the first episode, but people like William Fletcher saying that he never had a fair hearing and he's joined by all these other judges, you know, the most accomplished judges we have. And they've looked at, at the documents and that's the only determination to make. If, if you make a different determination, you're just not being honest. Yeah, Exactly. You know, and it comes to mind that there was a case, and it happened in California, and it's, it's been a few years, and it's, it's actually a, a very sad situation. And again, there was, you know, a, a woman lost her life, and I don't remember exactly. The guy's name was Green. That was his last name. It turns out this guy gets convicted for killing his girlfriend. Someone heard them arguing. He goes to Carl's Jr. to buy a hamburger. He goes to one 
know, four miles away from his house. He needs to clear his head. And some guy comes and rapes and kills her. His entire family turns against him. They put him in jail. They convict him. And he ends up in prison where he's brutally raped. And the guys that rape him have AIDS. So fast forward 15 years or 16 years, the actual perpetrator of the crime, and here we are again, the coincidence, is on death row here in California with me. He finally cops to it. So yeah, yeah, okay, it was me. Wow. They test everything. They find out it's true. It wasn't Green. It wasn't her boyfriend or husband. I forget who it was. It was this other guy. And they finally let him go. But it's been nearly 20 years. He's dying of AIDS because the people in prison thought he was guilty. So they figured, hey, you killed a, uh, uh, you raped and killed a woman. I think that I think she was pregnant or the child was, I forget all the details, but they, they gang raped him. Where does that guy go from there? The state pays him a few, you know, two million bucks. Hey, sorry about the mistake, guy. But look what he's gone through because someone didn't do their job correctly and they took shortcuts. So I'm, I'm just bringing that to point because it's it's upsetting that this happens even today and it continues to happen because obviously they're still arguing that uh, none of this stuff happened, that it wasn't planted, that he was guilty, and, well, you know the rest of it. You know, this this also kind of gets back to something that's a little bit on the kind of national discourse, and that's Kamala Harris. I think I'm saying that correctly. I mostly read the news and because the TV news is really bad. Is, that, is it Kamala or Kamala? Kamala, okay. Yeah, that's a, that's a good one. I, I say Kamala or Kamala. Yeah, you know what? You know, the vice president, how's that? <laughs> former attorney general for California, how's that? Vice president Harris, yes, former <laughs> attorney general. Um, you know, she she was not um, a fan of uh, kind of granting new DNA testing in several of these cases, and the Cooper one is one uh, that, that, that impacted, and she told the New York Times, I feel awful about this. She probably should, but again, that doesn't really help Cooper. No, it does And she was the attorney general in California, had the power to ask for this. But luckily, um, Governor Brown asked for DNA testing, um, which there was some controversy behind that because then they, they tested the blood. It came back positive to Kevin Cooper, but then they found that the blood had this chemical that stops the blood from coagulating. And it turns out that you can't have it unless the blood came from a test tube. So obviously when they test the blood, the blood on the shirt that they were testing came from a test tube. Last time I checked, when someone gets cut, the blood doesn't jump to a test tube and then back into the, the clothing. So someone planted it. So now uh, Gavin Newsom, the present governor of California, yeah, I believe it was May, uh, May 28th, Governor Gavin Newsom has ordered an independent uh, person because obviously you can't trust the prosecution or the law enforcement as he's having an independent firm come in and test all the evidence, which has never been done before in the state of California. And he's hoping to have resolution to this. It's part of the uh, Kevin Cooper's plea to the governor because no one else is really, everybody believes and everybody says it's true, but the courts aren't really responding. So the governor has stepped in now 
and he has ordered all testing to be done to come to a firm conclusion as to Kevin's um, position in this crime and whether he should get Randy Trail. And also, the governor is um, is considering uh, a commutation of the sentence based on the evidence that is proven to be true when this independent study is done. Mm-hmm. So this could take a year or more. Um, but I would, I would think that he's probably pretty optimistic at the same time. You know, you, you just get dealt these disappointing blows again and again. I mean, you, it's probably hard to let yourself uh, get too excited about something like that. Yeah, it's been um, 1983 when this happened, so it's been it's been a long time. It's it's been a lifetime, and I'm sure that uh, Kevin and his defense team, and I'm sure a lot of people that are listening, and others that are not, and those who are some of our listeners, I'm sure don't want to hear this, but um, you know the truth is going to come out, and um, I don't think that you and I are taking a stand either way. I think we're calling it as we see it based on common sense. And um, let's hope that um, things turn out. Um, let's just hope the truth comes out. I think that's the best way to leave it, that the truth comes out, and whatever that may be, that it is exactly that and only that, the truth. How does Kevin Cooper spend his days there on death row? Um, is he kind of obsessed with, with his own case? It's kind of how I would picture that happening. Well, yeah, of course. He's he's fighting for his life. Um, he, unlike a lot of people here, has dedicated a very large portion of his time to you know, speaking out, writing about what's happened. And- we took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade Two. Play it now with Game Pass. And, you know he's done numerous forty-eight hours. He's done other television shows where the reporters have come in and talked to him. Kim Kardashian has gotten involved. A number of other celebrities have gotten involved. So he takes up a lot of his time doing that. He does go outside. You know, he works on a, on a, on a daily basis, and um, he also paints. He's trying to make his life something of a real life, given the circumstances he's been uh, dealt. Do you think he's... I mean, I know that you kind of know the guy, and you, you, know, you, you don't want to give out details about his personal life, but I mean, is he, is he angry? Is he, is he determined? Is he optimistic? I think that he's determined to prove his innocence. I think that it's very important to him that he can prove that he was not the perpetrator of this crime. I also believe that he's also, um, justifiably so, he's angry. I mean, they put him in a death cell. He was a couple of minutes from being executed. That will have a profound effect on anybody. I mean, he just doesn't go around here uh, beating up people. or That's not the kind of anger I'm talking about. I think that he's, 
the anger fuels the term determination and vice versa for him to prove his innocence. But yeah, I would say he's angry, he's upset for what's happened to him. And if in fact he is innocent, as he says he is, and it seems to be, from what we've looked at and discussed, that there is a very good, there is a reasonable probability that he is innocent, I don't blame him. Well, hopefully we'll have an update on... Uh on this panel that's going through his evidence and uh you know we'll be monitoring this so i think that's it for today we're going to be back next week with uh with a story some stories coming up of really scary serial killer guys that have been on death row in san quentin we'll get your uh your analysis that you and few few other people are are qualified to uh, to have on these on these uh, freaks. Yeah, that's a good name for them, freaks. But uh, they're dangerous freaks. They're actually monsters. And uh, this is what I do. I watch monsters, and um, you'll hear the inside scoop on these monsters starting next week. We're we'll going to a Matt Metz's series of. Uh, different serial killers um, and you're going to find it interesting so stay tuned and uh, of course this is William Nogueira and I'm Matt Ralston and these are the Death Row Diaries don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Death Row Diaries patreon.com slash Death Row Diaries and uh, please rate and review the show on iTunes. And that's all we got. We'll see you next time.